It's our joy to be able to study His Word, and I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5 as we come back to our look at the Sermon on the Mount. For the past several weeks, we've been looking at a section that really has as its central theme the issue of righteousness, which basically is a word for being right with God. Righteousness is conformity to everything that God declares to be right. It's conformity to everything that He declares to be good and true and just. It describes the kind of life that God accepts or the kind of life that God affirms. That's what righteousness is. And Jesus introduced this sort of theme, this topic in verse 20 of Matthew chapter 5 when He says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, he's warning his listeners, he's warning you and I that there is a kind of righteousness that people ascribe to, a kind of righteousness that they define that is pretty much worthless. There's a certain way that people define righteousness, a certain way that people think about righteousness, or you might say it this way, there's a certain, there's a certain way that people think about a religious life, a devout life, a moral life that is completely useless in the end because it doesn't get you into the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't get you into heaven. It will not save you on the day of judgment. No matter how devout people are, no matter how much they uh, sort of promote their particular ideas, no matter how long they've ascribed to this, no matter how many other people they know who ascribe to it, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter, Jesus says, if you have the wrong kind of righteousness. What you really need is a righteousness, he says, that exceeds all of these false definitions of righteousness. In the days of Jesus Christ, the people who sort of promoted their ideas, the ones who had sort of the popular view of this righteousness, this religious life, were the scribes and Pharisees. They had a definition of righteousness, but Jesus says it's worthless. It's useless. It's not going to do anything to save you in the end. And so the whole section, after verse 20 through the end of chapter 5, this whole section is devoted to explaining exactly what kind of righteousness is necessary and what kind of righteousness God is seeking, a kind of righteousness that will truly, in the end, save you. Jesus has explained to us that if you have this kind of righteousness, if you have that kind of life that is affirmed by God, that conforms to God, then not only is it going to save you at the end, it's going to be evident. It's going to be evident in your life. It's going to look different than anything else that you see. And it's going to be evident, among other things, in um, one particular way that you might summarize as simply love. That's really at the heart of so much of what he's been saying. This righteousness is, is, you might say, primarily manifested in a kind of love. 
a love, he tells us in verse 21, a love instead of anger in your heart. Or, uh, or he says, a, a love instead of lust in verse 27. Even love instead of divorce. Or love instead of deception, as he goes on to say in verse 33. Or in verse 38, love instead of retaliation and vengeance. All throughout this section, you can see he's touching on these issues which run contrary to love. And in fact, if you talk about righteousness, and if you talk about a life that conforms to what God demands and what God declares to be right, what you're really talking about is a life that's defined by love. You're talking about a life that conforms to love, because love conforms to God and it conforms to God's laws. Later on in Matthew 22, Jesus will say this, that love is actually the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament. All of the law and all of the prophets, he says, are fulfilled in two central commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So conformity to God's commands, conformity to God's requirements, conformity to the kind of life that God asks of us, conformity to the kind of statutes that He's laid out in the Old Testament, conformity to everything that He's revealed in His in his uh, uh, scripture, conformity to all of that, conformity to righteousness is summarized as love. Now to say that would appear on its surface to really answer a lot of questions and clarify a lot of things in people's mind because everyone is for love. I mean, it's hard to find anyone who would say that they're against love. Everyone's in favor of love. But you have to understand that when people talk about love, they have very different ideas about that. So in some sense, it's, it's a, a simple way to talk about righteousness, to say righteousness is fulfilled in love. But in some ways, it's insufficient because everyone has some definition in their mind when they talk about love that they're ascribing to, but it's not necessarily righteous love. There is, of course, we know that sort of sentimental form of love that is all sort of Cupid and, and cards and, you know, hearts and candy. There's the erotic, sensual sort of love that dominates our computer screens and our social media and our our songs and and all of those things. There's sort of the relativistic love, which uh, eschews all forms of uh, moral standard and all ideas of right and wrong. There's all kinds of ways that people talk about love that, that, that they would describe and think of as love, but they're not one and the same with righteousness. They don't conform to God's standard. They don't satisfy what God demands. In fact, we would say in some sense, everybody loves. Everyone has someone in their life that they believe they love and that loves them in return. Love is in that sense very universal. And yet Jesus is telling us in this passage that even though everyone would have a definition like that, not 
everyone has a form of righteousness that God finds acceptable. And so it begs the question, if love really is the definition of righteousness, and righteousness is what's necessary to get into heaven, then what exactly is this love that equates or Jesus equates with righteousness? Well, that's where Jesus sort of lands this whole discussion in verses 43 through 48. He caps off this discussion of righteousness with a head-on description of the kind of love that he has been touching on really throughout this entire section. It's one of the most memorable sections you'll find anywhere in the Scripture on the issue of love, and it is directly confronting a wide or broad misunderstanding of love and setting it in contrast with what we might say are the standards of love that God demands. Listen to what he says in verse 43. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes His Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? You, therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Here what you have is the final contrast that Jesus makes in this section. You remember he's made six of them. This is the final one, the sixth one. They go all the way back to verse 21 and he's contrasting the teaching of these scribes and Pharisees you might say their, their definition of righteousness, where they, kind of, where they kind of define their religion, he's contrasting their definitions, their interpretations, their understanding of the Scripture, which was twisted, with the true understanding of the Old Testament, which as we said, a true understanding of the Old Testament leads you inevitably to a true understanding of love, a true understanding of true love, the kind of love that God demands. And so throughout this entire section, Jesus has been making this contrast. You've heard that it was said, but I say to you. You've heard that it was said, but I say to you. You've heard that it said, I say to you. And all the way through when he does that, what he's doing is he's confronting not the Old Testament because Jesus says back in verse 17, he's not trying to get rid of the Old Testament. He would never want to do such a thing. But what he wants to do is he wants to undermine those false perceptions of the Old Testament, those false perceptions of God's Word and the Scripture, which people use to justify their own religion, to justify their own sense of righteousness, to make them sort of comfortable in their standing before God. And Jesus is trying to knock all of that out from under their feet, their feet and your feet, 
so that you can hear what God truly demands, the kind of righteousness that he really finds acceptable. And the kind of righteousness he finds acceptable is the kind of righteousness that is manifested in love. And that's what he's doing for us here in this final section. He's defining that love. In fact, he does it four ways for us, four ways, if you will, to define the love that God demands. And the first one there in verse 43 and 44 is the love that is displayed toward your enemies. That's the kind of love God demands. He says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. This was one of the things that was taught by the rabbis. We know it because not only what Jesus says here, he he was speaking to a group of people who would have been very familiar with rabbinical teaching. They had taken the Old Testament, which taught, and for example, in Leviticus 19.18, which says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against your sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's what the scripture taught. The rabbis, however, took that verse, twisted its meaning to suggest that this means you should love your neighbor only and therefore hate your enemy. As a matter of fact, later Jewish philosophers, uh, hundreds of years later, were still teaching this, one of them commenting on Leviticus 19.18, says, he is therefore thy neighbor if he's good. But if not, he's wicked, and as it's written, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. So this was the kind of deductive reasoning that they had, or even in Jesus' own day, there was a community that lived out in the desert uh, we know as Qumran, and they wrote uh, some, uh, some, some writings that are commonly known as the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they would say in their, in their community um, scroll or their community rule that they have a responsibility to love one another but to hate the children of darkness, which in their, which in, uh, in their uh, writings, the children of darkness was anyone outside of their community. So they love one another but they hate the children of darkness. This is what they taught. This was their twisted meaning of the Old Testament. They knew the Old Testament commanded you to love, but they inferred from that that it was only your neighbor. In fact, they would say that you had a responsibility to hate your enemy. It was almost like a patriotic ideal for many Jews particularly hatred toward their occupying powers, the Roman government. Or if you want to say it this way, they had a responsibility and a duty to hate their overseeing authorities, their governors, their emperor, their soldiers who were, you know, sort of like their, their uh, you know, police or, or whatever it might be. They just hated all of that. They hated all that apparatus that was over them and around them. And they actually felt like it was their duty and their responsibility to hate these people. In fact, if you didn't express that kind of hatred 
toward these supposed enemies of your religion and enemies of your culture, if you didn't, if you didn't adequately express that kind of hatred, you were questioned about your own sincerity, about your own sort of clarity of mind. And then they would layer on top of that, not only are you supposed to hate the Romans and hate the occupying power, but you're also supposed to hate those within Israel who are working sympathetically with this evil force. So that would include the tax collectors or what they would sometimes call even the Hellenists. That is to say, the Jews who had adopted Roman ways of life and Roman culture, and they would go to the theaters and they would go to the, to the, uh, you know, the, the horse races or whatever it might be, the stuff that they associated with Roman culture, those people were now in the category of the ones that you hate. And then you layer on top of that the sinners. These were the prostitutes. These were the outcasts. These were the ones who were deemed unworthy uh, from a ritual standpoint. You sort of lump them in together and you hate them as well. And so they had this whole sort of system and category where you were allowed to love your neighbor, but everyone else, you had almost a duty and a responsibility to hate them. And it wasn't just some sort of private thing. You you were expected to verbally express this within, within a society in order to prove your credentials. And they even developed prayers for this. Uh, there were elaborate prayers in ancient Jewish literature which were prayers of hatred. That they would stand and pray against their enemies on a regular basis. At the same time, they were supposed to love their neighbor, which it didn't necessarily mean the person who lived next to you. That's, that's the way our English word uh, is uh, translated. That's the, way, that's the word that we use. But this really kind of has a broader meaning to that. This is the people that you identify with. So this would be uh, the, 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 the people who are sort of in your ethnic group. Or the people who are in your social group, your cultural group. You might even say this is the in-group. This is the group that that you would consider to be your in-group, your socially acceptable group. Those were the people that you had responsibilities toward. Those were the people that you were supposed to love. You were showing your loyalty to them. Jesus, however, confronts all of this. This is what you've heard that was said. This is what you've been brought up thinking. This is the way you've been told to respond. This is what you see around you. This is what you see your respected leaders teaching and doing and demonstrating. This is the values that guide them on a day-to-day basis. But it's not the values that God demands. It's not what God calls for. In fact, he says you should love even your enemies. When he said love your neighbor, he means everyone. Everyone. 
to the most extreme example, the most, you might say, unlovable person that you could imagine, your enemy. And consequently, everyone in between, from that extreme example to the easiest example, everyone are to be objects of your love. In fact, this is kind of an escalation because back in verse 39, he's already told us that we're not supposed to resist the evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. So he's already kind of taught this principle of non-retaliation, turning the other cheek. That's the negative side. You don't retaliate, you don't resist, but this actually escalates your responsibility from not just not just refraining from from vengeance, but actually positively serving and loving. And this is what sets Christ apart from from, uh, every other sort of world leader, every other religion. You've had those non-retaliatory sort of uh, peaceful pacifist religions. You, everyone uh, understands the, the, the tradition of Gandhi and non-retaliation and all those things. Those religious leaders who have sort of idealized that pacifism for their own sense of righteousness. But Jesus doesn't go just to pacifism. He's not saying that your responsibility ends when you actually turn the other cheek. He's saying, no, you have a responsibility if you want to be acceptable to God, if you want to have a life and a righteousness that God accepts, then you have to not only turn the other cheek, but you have to then go out of your way to express love towards your enemy. And he's not talking about sentimentality. That is, as I said, the concept of love on the heart in the minds of so many people. He's not mandating that you feel a certain way about your enemy. As a matter of fact, it assumes that you don't feel a certain way. Because if you felt some sort of sentimental connection, if you felt some sort of sentimental closeness with your enemy, there'd be no need for Jesus to command this kind of love. You'd just do it anyway. So this assumes a sort of an internal resistance because you don't feel that way. In fact, you feel quite the opposite. You might have lingering resentment and and unconfessed anger that still is generating all kinds of negative emotions in your heart when you see the person, when you think about them. Those people who spend their life just driven by how they feel towards someone or towards some group, and they just, uh, they, they, they cannot bring themselves to engage with that individual. They can't bring themselves to engage with that group until they generate the kind of feelings that, that uh, uh, do that. Whatever they are waiting on and whatever they're generating is not the divine standard that God demands. Your flesh and your emotions will tell you to withdraw from those people. It'll tell you to hold grudges if you've been treated with harshness or spitefulness or meanness. 
or if you're turned off by a life of self-righteousness in someone, or if you're just sort of put off by their moral bankruptcy, uh, their, their disagreements with your opinions about the world and about life, And so you just kind of put them in that category of people that you're not drawn to, people that you don't feel any sentimental connection to. You put them in the category of of those who are not in your group, maybe even in the category of your enemies. And you excuse yourself then from not showing the positive, active kind of love that God demands. But godly love doesn't descend to that level. It calls you to set aside your emotions and commit yourself to the benefit and to the happiness of those who have even hurt you, of those who might have even shamed you. Godliness calls you to make a choice of love, even when it's hard, And to follow actions of love even when you don't feel it. As a matter of fact, those who have practiced righteousness and understood this kind of love will tell you again and again and again that the emotions that are involved with this many times, they don't follow the actions or if they do, they come much later. So in some ways, you're you're constantly fighting against your emotions to try to do this very thing. Another way to say that is that this is not a love that's arising from within you. It's not a love that's coming naturally from the way you feel. It's a different kind of love. It's not sentimental, it's practical. When, when Jesus uh, speaks, or I should say when Luke records Jesus' words in Luke chapter 6, his version of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Do good. That's not your feelings, that's your practical acts of love. David described this, his own attitude toward those who hated him in Psalm 32 He says, they repay me evil for good to the bereavement of my soul. But as for me, when they are sick, my clothing is sackcloth. I humble my soul with fasting. My prayer kept returning to your bosom, excuse me, to my bosom. I went about as though it were my friend or my brother. I bowed down mourning as one who sorrows for a mother. But at my stumbling, they rejoice. You hear what David's saying? He's saying, these are the people who are looking for my downfall. They're hoping, they're anticipating for my demise. They're constantly repaying evil for my good. And yet, when they're sick, when they're down, when they're sort of, uh, sort of on the outs... My prayer is being lifted to God for them as if I was praying for my own family. And that's the kind of love that God demands. 
In fact, Luke goes on to say, Jesus says, not only are you supposed to do good to them, he says you are to bless those who curse you. That word bless basically puts together the word for speaking and the word for kindness, which means that you are to speak kindly about them and kindly to them. You, you might say it this way, you accentuate their positive qualities. When possible, you look for ways to encourage them. Here in Matthew 5, Jesus says that you're to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, those who attack you. And he's not talking about the kind of imprecatory prayers that were common among the Jews. I, I have people sometimes, unfortunately, who have um, who've told me, you know, I'm praying for you, and I'm thinking, uh, I'm not sure I want to know what you're asking. He's not saying that you're praying for God to strike someone down. He's talking about the kind of prayer that David prayed. Or he's talking about the kind of prayer that Stephen prayed prayed in Acts chapter 7 when people were hurling stones at him. And while the stones were still flying through the air, he lifts up his voice and says, Lord, do not hold this against them. He's talking about the kind of prayer that he offered. As they drove nails through his hands and his feet and hung him on a cross, And he prayed, Father, forgive them. This is a love that isn't from this world. This is not the kind of love that people think about whenever they talk about love. Even if they associate it with religion, this is not what they are normally thinking about. Most of them are thinking about that sort of love that comes with all the good feelings and all the emotion. Some sort of... Some sort of... uh, a natural thing that arises within everyone or something they might have experienced in their life that made them feel warm and good and, and, and at home. But none of that is what Jesus is talking about. This is a kind of love towards your enemies that doesn't make sense to the world. And, and Jesus is not even offering this as some sort of pragmatic solution. He's not saying that when you show this kind of love, it's going to miraculously melt the heart of your enemy He's not saying that's going to transform them into your friend. That's not what this is. This is not some tactic and not some strategy. The purpose behind this love is not to transform your enemy. The purpose behind this love is to identify with your God. To glorify His name. As you reflect His love, you reflect Him. Which leads us really to the second way that Jesus defines this kind of love in verse 45. The love that God demands is a love that's demonstrated by God. It's not only extended to your enemies, but it's demonstrated by God. He says in verse 45, you do this, you love your enemies so that you may be sons of your father who's in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. 
You do this so that you will be sons. Not saying that this is the basis of your sonship. He's not saying that you're going to somehow earn your spot before God. But what he's saying is that when you display this kind of love, you are proving your family likeness. You resemble him because your love resembles his love. And his love, Jesus says, is an indiscriminate kind of a love. It doesn't discriminate against his enemies. As a matter of fact, he shows care equally for the good and the bad, for the righteous and the unrighteous. He gives gifts to them. Do you know that? You know, the Bible says every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights. So when these evil people, when these unrighteous people, whoever they may be, whenever they experience a blessing, whenever they experience some joy in their life, that is a gift that comes down from God above. And so he literally is sending gifts to his enemies. He gives them specifically, Jesus mentions here, his son. It's not just the son, it's his son. The son that he created to bring warmth and light and blessing to the earth. And he he causes his rain to fall on them, which in those days would have been a blessing, particularly in an agricultural world where people depended on this all the time. He was basically saying he's going to cause their farms to prosper. This is what theologians call common grace. It's not saving grace. God isn't loving them all in a saving way, or he's not loving them all equally like he loves his own children. He doesn't claim them all as sons and daughters, and yet, even when they're not his sons and daughters, even when they're his enemies, he's compassionate, gracious, and kind. He knows that they despise him. He knows that they reject him, they reject his word. They question his character. They question his existence. He knows that they seek to undermine his people and persecute his children. He knows all that. We see it and it grieves us, but he knows it to a far greater level. And yet he continues to show goodness and patience and forbearance through common grace. Now, none of this should be misinterpreted as if God affirms their behavior or their character or any of that. that this, is, this is not what it's about. It's not even really a tactic on God's part to try to change them. He simply does it Because he is loving. People always sort of struggle. Why do bad things happen to good people? The real question is why do good things happen to bad people? How in the world can you explain that? When people are spurning God and hating God and rejecting God and rebelling against God, he continues to show them this kind of kindness. Kindness. 
because he is kind. And the reason these things keep happening to them, the reason that they receive the blessings of family and children, the blessings of job and income, the blessings of light and warmth, the blessings of of this world and all of its fruits and enjoyments, the reason they do that is because he is loving. And so Jesus is saying when we exhibit that same kind of behavior toward our enemies who are persecuting us, when we exhibit that same kind of behavior towards people who are blaspheming us, who are attacking our character, who are trying to undermine our existence or our, our, our happiness, when we love them, we're actually proving a family likeness and we're glorifying his name. And I might add to that to say that you are also entering into deeper fellowship with Him, with God. When we consciously return kindness for evil, when we wrestle in our own hearts with the sting and the pain of being mistreated, and yet we turn around and show love, it actually, it actually drives us deeper in our understanding of who God is and how He acts And consequently, it drives you deeper into worship. If you're one of those people that's looking for a way to sort of reinvigorate your worship and reinvigorate your spiritual life and reinvigorate your sense of connection to God, then maybe you ought to just be asking for some sort of trial. Something that will press you closer to understand God And all of the sort of blasphemy and rejection and vitriol that he himself endures every day. And then you turn around and be like God. You show love and kindness to those very same people. That'll be a worship service. I wonder sometimes, you know, what if I, what if I got control of the sun and the rain what if I could control all of those things the prosperity and the and the lack of prosperity on someone's farm someone's business someone's family what would I do with it how would I dispense it would it just be favoritism toward my own Or would I be like the Lord? Would I shower it on everyone? Even those who've mistreated me. God does. And the love that he demands is like that. It's like his. Well, that somewhat naturally leads to the third definition of the kind of love that God demands in verse 46. The love that God demands is distinct from that of the world. Because everything Jesus has described contrasts with what you find normally in the world, he says in verse 46, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? I mean, even tax collectors do that. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Even Gentiles do the same. This is common. This is what you find, this kind of love that is essentially self-serving pragmatism. It's reciprocal love. You love because you're loved in return. You show kindness because someone's been kind to you. You, you smile at them because they did something good to you, and if they didn't do something good to you, you give them a frown. 
That's just sort of natural. That's what the world does. And all of it, although it, it sort of goes under the name of love, and although people might think of themselves as loving in some way, and although they may sort of recognize some affection that they have toward some friend or some person or some loved one, and although they may feel a sense of care, and although they may have some sense of warmth, at the end of the day, it's nothing but a cheapened and degraded form of love, a self-serving pragmatism that only is expressed toward others as long as there is some sort of payoff back to yourself. And if there is no payoff, your love goes away. In fact, all you have is punishment toward them, the best that you can. Jesus says, this is kind of love. He tells his listeners, that's kind of love that you find among tax collectors, which for a Jew was the epitome of someone who was primarily concerned with their own self-interest, their own welfare, their own benefits. Because tax collectors operated within the Roman sort of tax farming system where the Romans would designate a territory and they would determine a tax for that territory. But, but beyond that, They would just bid that territory out to the highest bidder. And so these sort of cutthroat people would come along and they would bid up the project until they won the bid and then they were given broad authority to do whatever they had to do to collect that sum of money. They had a responsibility to turn in what was due to the government, whatever the government designated, but anything beyond that they could keep for themselves. And so it led, as you might imagine, to all kinds of unlawful enforcement measures, all kinds of tactics in order to extract money, to extort money in some cases from people, all kinds of things that drove people into the ground and into poverty so that the person who had sort of put themselves out, they had made this bid, they could return the bid and make a profit. And then on top of that, these tax collectors were looked at as the ones who were primarily funding the very occupying powers who were all around them. So tax collectors were were the greedy. They were the self-interested people all around you. They were the ones who were looked at as sort of having these sort of backroom deals with the powers that be. And they were, they, were, they were typically wealthy people, rich people, who were all concerned about their own benefit, their own profits. And so they made a perfect image for Jesus to use here because he says, even those people, you can take the worst person that you can think of. You can think, think of the most uh, sort of corrupt person that you can think of. And Jesus says, even that person loves those who love them in return. And so if that's all that you're doing, you're no better than that corrupt person. They love their family. They love their friends. They love their children. They love the people who are always agreeing with them and affirming them, showing them some kind of loyalty. And if you ask them, this corrupt person, if they're loving, I'm pretty sure they would say, yeah. In fact, they might even be religious. They might even define their religion as love. 
They might talk about love all the time. It might be a part of their sort of motto. They might be, they might be going to worship every week. They might be engaged in some sort of acts of, uh, of charity and, and good deed. But all of this essentially is a man-made love. And it's on this man-made love that people then build man-made religion. And all of it has the language of love, but none of it has the love that God demands. Because it's all self-serving. And so Jesus says, if you're just doing that, what reward do you expect? God's affirmation? You expect God to look at you and commend you for that? Well, look what he says in verse 47. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Here he pictures people who might, we might call them an unfriendly person. They greet only their friends. They greet only the people with whom they're comfortable. They greet the people only with whom they are familiar only with whom they agree, only their brothers, or you might say their close associates, not literally their, their blood relatives, but just those people that they consider part of their brotherhood. Obviously, they wouldn't greet a tax collector. They wouldn't greet a sinner. They wouldn't greet someone with whom they disagree. They wouldn't extend a handshake. They wouldn't extend a warm word. They wouldn't extend a blessing, wishing someone well. There are people like that. They're not really looking outside of their own group. They're just happy to greet their own friends. Because their own friends make them feel good. And they think that they're loving because they have friends. They think that they're loving because uh, everyone in their group seems to like them. Jesus says, that's not love. Not in the way that God demands. That's just self-serving pragmatism. The love that God demands goes beyond all of that sort of selfishness. What reward You know, in Luke, when he talks about this and he asks the same question, what credit is it to you if this is all that you're doing? He then says to them that if you do love your enemies, you will be called sons of the Most High. That's your reward. That's that's the benefit. If you have this kind of divine love that God demands, the reward is is actually knowing that you're a child of God, is actually recognizing that God is doing a work within you. It's actually recognizing that you have a relationship with God and that He's transformed you beyond something that you would find anywhere else in the world. But if your love is only for your friends and only for your in-group, it doesn't matter how much you call yourself loving. It's not a love that is righteous and it's not a righteousness that will get you into heaven 
And so the love that God demands goes beyond the world's love. It isn't just the world's love at its best. It's a totally different kind of love. It's a totally transcendent kind of love. As I've said, it's not a love that just arises out of something in you like your good emotions. It's something that comes from somewhere else, which is really the fourth defining point of the kind of love that God demands. And Jesus gives it to us in verse 48. The love that God demands is dependent on God's righteousness. That's what he says in verse 48. You, therefore... Therefore, kind of connects it back to what he's just been talking about, all this divine love. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the standard of this divine love that Jesus has been describing, this kind of love that sets aside self-interest, The kind of love that loves strangers, that loves even its enemies, the kind of love that transcends anything that you find in this world. He says here that it's the kind of love that loves in a perfect way, just like God loves. Because you see, God's love permeates everything that God does. And John says in 1 John, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And if anyone does not love, he does not know God, because God is love. This is what Jesus is saying. If you don't have the kind of love that he's been describing, if you don't have that kind of transcendent love... If you don't have the kind of love that goes beyond your own self-interest, then whatever love you have, and we might add that whatever kind of religion you have, whatever kind of righteousness you have that you might have attached to your ideals of a loving and a good person, they are useless. You have to have the kind of love that is perfect. God's love is perfect. It's ideal. And the one who loves in the way that God demands has a connection and an evidence that God is at work with them. His love is perfect. It's not saying that, it's not saying that God's love, therefore, uh, will never judge someone. It's not saying that God is so loving that he's never going to assign anyone to condemnation doesn't mean that God is going to set aside His judicial role as the sovereign over the universe who ultimately will deal with all things which are, in, uh, are unjust and unright. He will do that in His role as judge and He will judge those who are found to be guilty. But in the meantime, He is showering his rays of sunshine and watering all of the crops of his enemies and giving blessings of family and life and joy to people who do not deserve it, to people who ultimately will never accept him. He doesn't withhold anything from them. He shows them so much kindness. And so we have to have that same kind of perfect love 
We have to be perfect as He's perfect. In fact, the words must be. You therefore must be perfect. Those are future tense, implying that this will be progressively more and more evident in your life. You will progressively be more and more like God. You'll be transformed more and more into His likeness, into His love. You'll be showing love more and more just like He shows love. Assuming, of course, that you know His love. Assuming that you know Him. Or assuming that you are one of His children. Then you can show His likeness. But that only happens if you're in a relationship with God. The kind of relationship that takes place when you become His child. If you're still His enemy, if you're still rebelling against Him, still denying Him, still denying His commandments, you have no relationship with God, and I wouldn't expect to see this kind of love in your life. You might have a certain kind of morality. You might feel a certain kind of love, just like the love of the world. But any righteousness you have is no better than the righteousness Jesus talked about back in verse 20. Any love that you have is just like the love of the scribes and Pharisees. It won't get you into heaven. It's going to be found by God to be superficial and insufficient. And it's not going to save you. What do you need? You need God's love. You need, first of all, to accept the love of the Savior who, in spite of all your rebellion, freely gave Himself on a cross. He did that to take away God's wrath. He took God's wrath on that cross so that you could be the recipient of God's salvation. He did that to show you love, to teach you love, and to open up your heart so that God, through His Holy Spirit, can pour out His love. He can shed it abroad into your hearts, and He can begin to transform you into His image. And you actually begin to receive the righteousness of God working its way out in your life. And then one day, that perfection of God in His perfect love, it'll be yours completely. Because He promises when He comes again that He's going to give you a new body just as He gives you a new spirit. He's going to pour out His love In you, he's going to transform you from the inside out and then one day he's going to give you a body to match that and you're going to be spending eternity in the love of God with a righteousness that's like his. This is what he demands. There is no other love, there is no other righteousness that he will accept. Only his perfection. And the good news is He gives it to you. 
when you receive Christ, He gives it to you. And He begins to transform you into this kind of loving person and this kind of righteous person. If you're here today and, they, and, and, and you have never been challenged in this way, you've thought about yourself as loving, but, but now you see that your love is no better than anybody, anybody else's love. And God is working in your heart right now. You know that you are deficient. And you know that God has what you need. Our challenge today is that you would not leave here without receiving the love of God and His mercy in your life, forgiving your sin, making you a new creature, and promising you eternal life. We'd love the chance to be able to talk to you about the love of God. We have, after the service is finished, down the hallway to the right, we have a visitor reception. I'll be there. Some of our other leaders will be there. We'd love to hear how the Lord is working in your life. If you would, stop by. Let us know. We'd love to be able to pray with you. Love to be able to share with you what the Lord's done in our life and our heart. Love to be able to talk about the Word of God and these promises to you. So when we finish in a moment with a word of prayer and a song, we invite you, please, please, come see us in that time of reception. Well, let's stand together as we are dismissed with a word of prayer and a song. Father, we're so grateful that you love us. We live in a world that isn't filled with love or is filled with a cheap substitute of love. But it's a kind of love that makes us feel dejected and unwanted and lonely and empty. But your love never leaves us that way. Your love fills our heart and our life. It helps us to go beyond the sort of restrictions that bind us by our natural tendencies. And our life is filled with love from within and without. We fill our life with acts of love and deeds of love because we see you loving in that way. Lord, we pray that you would help us to do that more and more. May you fill us with your perfection. May you make us like you, perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Lord, that's our prayer. That's our hope. And we ask for it in Christ's name. Amen.